Hello, and welcome to the Music Skills Webinar, a guide to facing complications. My name is Khurshid Ghani. I'm from the University of Michigan, and I'm fortunate to be the director of the uh, Music Collaborative and welcome you to this uh, global webinar teaching event. Today, the focus of our webinar is around uh, surgical complications, a guide to how to get a patient and yourself through sometimes what can be challenging complications. For this event today, we are fortunate to have three um, fantastic um, guest speakers joining us. Uh, I'll tell you more about the program shortly, but I'd like to thank and welcome uh, Dr. Uh, Gary Farber, Professor of Urology at Duke University, who will be uh, teaching us in the first part of the webinar around bleeding complications related to urethroscopy. And then in the second part of the webinar, we are fortunate to have uh, Professor Turner, who is a, a consultant urological surgeon in the UK, who will tell us about how surgeons cope with adverse events. And we are also uh, glad to be joined by our guest, Professor Egner from the University of Chicago, who will also speak about his experiences with major complications. Before we go into the body of the, of the session and the goals, let me give you a little brief uh, background about music. For many of you who may not know what music is, music stands for the Michigan Urological Surgery Improvement Collaborative, and we are a consortium of urologists and urology practices throughout the state that work together to improve the quality and cost efficiency of urologic care provided to patients in Michigan. And we're fortunate to be funded by our sponsor, the Value Partnerships Program at the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. Without their support, this collaborative would not be possible. We've been uh, together now for just under, for 10 years. And in fact, this is our 10 year anniversary. And we, we've uh, a group of around 46 urology practices in the state uh, with more than 260 urologists. Uh, we have the support of 15 patient advocates who provide us advice on quality initiatives and give us the patient perspective. We have a robust clinical registry where we capture data on uh, prostate cancer, kidney stone, and kidney cancer cases. Uh, we have published our results and our methods in numerous uh, uh, journals, and, and we have multiple initiatives throughout the state to improve the quality of care for patients. We began as a prostate cancer initiative in 2012, and then we branched into kidney stone um, a program called ROCKS in 2016, and then our latest initiative looking at small renal mass management with the kidney program in 2019. Good quality care consists of multiple things, but in broadly speaking, uh, we think that uh, patients should have excellent outcomes, they should have care that is at reasonable cost, and they should have appropriate care. And we've got multiple quality programs that look at different aspects of this in, in all the three streams that I just uh, discussed. But it's, a, it's around patient outcomes that we're going to focus the, the uh, webinar and the session today. If we think about patient outcomes, one of the biggest problems that we face when, as surgeons, we do procedures and operate on patients are complications. And many of these complications result in readmissions. And one of the things that we've been tracking in music over many years is readmissions after radical prostatectomy. And, and the beauty of our collaborative is that with the multiple practices, we collect data and we can understand variation in practice. And you can see here 
that in from 2014 to 2018, the variation demonstrated in readmission rates after radical prostatectomy ranged from 0% in some practices to nearly 10% in others, with an average in the state of around 4.5%. And we've had a goal to reduce radical prostatectomy readmissions to under 4% for some time. How are we trying to do that? And so we've developed multiple interventions to improve patient care. Uh, these include uh, patient uh, outcome reports to surgeons so that they can see what their perioperative outcomes look like, the music notes program. We have a patient reported outcome system. Patients undergoing prostate cancer surgery fill out surveys and tell us how they are doing after their surgery. And this data is then fed back to surgeons for quality improvement. We have led initiatives on the technical aspects of prostate cancer surgery with robotic prostatectomy video review. And we have a video library that's freely available on our website. And we visited multiple practices throughout the state to understand where the opportunities lie for uh, processes for uh, quality improvement and to implement changes. And for patients, we've developed multiple uh, educational resources. We've realized that some of these readmissions are related to ILIUS, so we developed initiatives around that. We've educated around safer use of uh, pain medication and narcotic reduction after radical prostatectomy. And we've also developed initiatives on educating patients around urinary function control after radical prostatectomy. And all of these things are now starting to lead to some impact. And th this is a, a graph that shows the readmission rates after radical prostatectomy in the state of Michigan from 2014 to 2021. And you can see that it, it's, it's the readmission rates has been stable for, for a long time, but only recently we're now starting to see some, some significant improvement. And the current readmission rate is now 3.3%. And it's really hard on a systematic level, multiple practices, multiple surgeons, uh, diverse uh, nature to try and systematically reduce readmissions. But what, what we're showing you here is that it is possible with the hard work and collaboration. Another area that I'd like to focus on is ureteroscopy. And we've been collecting data on ureteroscopy for kidney stones since 2016. Ureteroscopy is a very common operation and more than half a million of these procedures are done in the United States. And it is now overtaking shockwave lithotripsy as the number one procedure for stone intervention in the United States. But the thing about ureteroscopy is while it's very common, the burden of unplanned healthcare utilization after ureteroscopy varies from 15 to 20%. That many uh, number of patients may present to the emergency room and a smaller proportion will get hospitalized. And that's a significant uh, healthcare and patient burden that we in the state of Michigan through music have been trying to tackle. And so this is an example of the emergency department visit rates after ureteroscopy in the state of Michigan. And you can see that it varies again from 0% in some practices to nearly 15% in others, with the average 30-day emergency department visit rate after ureteroscopy at around 8%. And we've had a goal in music to reduce that readmission rate to uh, that emergency room uh, visit rate to under 7%. And for this, we've developed multiple interventions. We realized that many of these visits to the emergency room are due to stent symptoms. Uh, some of these are due to inadequate pain control, and we've developed systematic, more unified pain control pathways for surgeons in the state. 
And we've also developed some criteria for stent omission after ureteroscopy, hoping that this may reduce some of the complications as well. And all of these resources that I'm presenting here today are available on our website, Music Urology. And the result of this over time, and you can see from 2016 to 2021, while we've been tracking the data through our registry with all these multiple initiatives and through the hard work and support of the collaborative, we've been able to reduce the emergency department visit rate after urechoscopy from 10% to 6% with more than $2 million in cost savings as a result of this. And we couldn't do that without the support of surgeons and nurses and all our other partners and our advocates. So let's focus now on complications. And so uh, the theme today is around managing complications. And, and one framework for approaching complications is, is this framework uh, provided to me by Dr. Monty. And this is broken down into three aspects of failure to prevent, failure to recognize, and failure to rescue. And today we'll hear about uh, a complication that occurs during urethroscopy and how we can tackle uh, it and help the patient using these three uh, thematic approaches. So shortly, we'll be joined in the first part of the session where we'll be talking about a complication related to urethroscopy, especially uh, bleeding. And uh, Dr. Farber will be uh, part of that session. And we have, uh, we're fortunate to have multiple music urologists and also uh, Dr. Shields, who's an interventional radiologist at University of Michigan. And I'll let Dr. Dow introduce that panel shortly. In the second part, we will then transition to a very novel session uh, where we focus on how surgeons cope with these major complications. And this is a, a new area that is uh, 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 emerging. And one of the leaders in this is Dr. Turner, who will be speaking about this. And we're also uh, joined by Professor Egner from the University of Chicago, who's written about his experience in this domain, especially in the New York Times. And we also have the input of uh, some of our music uh, patients. We'll be fortunate to have Jason and Monica Piper provide the patient and family perspective on dealing with major complications. Uh, Professor Turner is leading the initiatives in the Royal College of Surgeons in the UK and has, has helped develop some guidelines and documentation around how, how to better support surgeons after adverse events. And I'm really excited to hear his keynote speech and talk and his contributions today. Our learning objectives from this session are the following. We're going to learn around some tips and tricks and technical aspects on how to manage bleeding complications related to urethroscopy. We're going to hear uh, around the efficacy of laser papillotomy for treating kidney stones from Professor Farber. We're going to learn more about how to navigate patient care when dealing with challenging complications. And we're going to understand the emerging evidence on how surgeons cope with adverse events. Just as a note, all of our educational webinars are available on our website and also through podcasts on, on the podcast channels. So we're going to transition now to the first part of the webinar where we're going to talk about managing complications related to ureteroscopy. Uh, we're joined in that session by Professor Farber, and, and also we're um, joined by Dr. Witsky and Dr. McCormick, music urologists throughout the state who've been strong partners in our mission and journey over these many years. We also have Dr. James Shields, an interventional radiologist at the University of Michigan, who, who is also in that panel. Thanks to all of them for taking part, and Dr. Dow will be leading that session, so I'm going to pass it over to him. I just want to say, please send us your questions into the chat so we can 
uh, answer your comments and get you involved in the discussion. So thank you. Thank you for taking part. And Casey, uh, over to you. Thanks, Dr. Ghani. Uh, it's truly a pleasure to be here. And thanks to everybody uh, who's willing to give us some of your time on a, on a weeknight. We know that time is precious. We're going to be presenting the skills workshop now, uh, in particular a case around bleeding after your reteroscopy. As uh, Kirsch had mentioned, we're joined by three expert panelists in addition to Dr. Gary Farber, um, Carla Witzke uh, and Lynn McCormick are urologists at, at My Michigan Health as well as Munson Healthcare. And then Jim Shields is a close partner uh, in our Department of Interventional Radiology at Michigan. And they'll be giving us their expert uh, panel consensus on, on the case as we go through. So to kick this off, um, this is a patient of mine actually, um, which in and of itself is quite a humbling thing uh, to present, um, but really gets at the nuts and bolts of what this whole webinar is about, which is processing and dealing with a complication both from the patient perspective uh, and the physician perspective. So I'm presenting a 37-year-old male with a history of idiopathic neurogenic bladder who is managed with intermittent cath, um, who has recurrent calcium kidney stones. He presented to my clinic with left flank pain, uh, evaluated by his primary care physician with a renal ultrasound, which showed a six millimeter left ureteral vesicle junction calculus, bilateral chronic hydronephrosis owing to his neurogenic bladder, as well as intrarenal calculi more numerous on the left than on the right. So the first question for our panelists is, in the situation like this, where you have a distal ureteral stone, but also renal stones, we're obviously going after the left side. Is it your usual practice, Carla or Lynn, to treat the renal stones after treating the distal ureteral stone? I typically would treat both the distal and the, and the proximal or renal stones in those patients, especially if they have chronic hydro. What about you, Lynn? I would take that on a case-by-case -case basis because it would depend for me, you know, I'm out in a fairly rural area and I have a lot of elderly patients who are quite ill. And so some of these patients, now yours, I don't know if this patient showed up emergently or, but many of my patients will show up emergently with distal obstructing stones. And so if they're not, um, tuned up medically, and a lot of them come from outlying areas because Manistee is a vacation area and they don't have primary care providers there. So if their health is good, I might do that. But if they show up and they're not healthy, then I might consider staging it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very reasonable. Um, like many things, what I like to hear is that you don't have a rote practice for every single patient. Um, and so, Carla, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that, um, but I agree with you too, Lynn, that th this is, you know, if it's a tiny non-obstructing stone in a patient who's got COPD or another uh, cardiopulmonary issue, it may not be worth prolonging the case. So I think in general, we kind of have some consensus here. Um, in this particular case, um, uh, what I did was perform semi-rigid ureteroscopy, uh, identified that stone at the left UVJ and treated it, and then passed the flexible ureteroscope into the ureter. Um, it was a very dilated, capacious ureter, um, identified uh, no obvious free stones in the kidney. Now we're dealing with a renal ultrasound, which I think we all can understand sometimes overestimates the prevalence of stones. Um, but we did uh, in the operating room find two collections of stones that seemed to be kind of just barely submucosal, kind of rattling around in an aeropolar calyx. And so um, the question that I have next is what would you do 
in this particular situation. These are now small stones that are just embedded, as you might see in this image here, just under the uh, uh, papillary tip. So typically with this this image that you've shown me, I, I may try to just get, you know, get a basket on top of that to see if I can free some up. Um, there's not, it doesn't really look like there'd be a great way to get in to try to laser that. Um, so I'd be, I'd be gentle in that, in that situation. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I might take a little different approach. I have a Soltive laser and I love that darn thing. Uh, it's new in my hands, but uh, it's one of the best lasers I've ever held. And I will tell you, I've done papillotomy and I've done it safely. And it's so rewarding to have all of those stones tumble out, even though it's frustrating when they recur. And you said this patient had chronic pain. And that's what a lot of medullary sponge patients present with. And it's frustrating for them because living with pain, especially nowadays in the days of, of opioid management and withdrawal of opioids is very difficult. And when you look at a patient who's got uh, stone disease and they're going to have chronic stone disease their whole life if they have medullary sponge, then are, do you want to give them NSAIDs for long periods of time? That's going to become a conflict at some point. So I do try to make careful papillotomies and try to um, not be aggressive, but, you know, allow the stones that will fall to fall and let them tumble because these little things that can come out um, are, are going to probably relieve their pain, but not cause a lot of problems. And papillotomy in general is, is fairly successful. It relieves a lot of pain. It, it uh, relieves some of the stone burden that they have and, and, very safe for patients. They're, they're very grateful to have it done. So I guess I'm a little bit more aggressive on that point. Yeah, I, I think just for the for the group online, the, the Soltiv uh, laser is a thulium fiber laser. Uh, it's relatively hemostatic relative to holmium. And I think, Lynn, you bring up a great point uh, in these chronic pain patients in particular. I think this is a perfect segue um, to an introduction uh, to uh, Dr. Gary Farber, who is the uh, um, section head of Duke Urology, um, started out as a close mentor as I trained at Michigan, and now I consider a friend and uh, uh, confidant as well as uh, fellow unapologetic Michigan sports fan. So he's going to give us a talk now on laser papillotomy, indications, technique, and lessons learned. Thanks, Gary. Hello, everyone. I just want to thank Casey. Um, I can call him Casey because I actually trained Dr. Daw during his residency. Um, so I think it's only appropriate to call him by first name. Uh, I wanna give a, a brief overview of uh, laser papillotomy. And I'll give you my overview on indications, technique, results, and lessons learned. I recall the first patient with papillary calcifications that I saw. I was her fourth opinion. She had undergone 10 shockwave lithotripsies and a couple of uteroscopies over the past three years, but still complained of persistent and debilitating left flank pain. Her CT demonstrated numerous papillary calcifications, as you can see. I counseled her that I could look and attempt to see if there were any stones visible, and I would try and treat them, 
but with the strong caveat that I might not make her pain any better. She wanted to proceed, and at the time of uteroscopy, I saw that her papilla, corresponding to her CT, had adherent stones. I used the laser and basket and removed all of the papillary stones. And I saw her in follow-up, and she felt like a new person and remained virtually pain-free for over the five years that I continued to see her. I saw another patient who had significant flank pain. Her CT showed small burden, non-obstructing stone disease. And I counseled her like I did the other patient. And likewise, she wanted to proceed. But unlike the other patient, I saw a different picture. In this case, she had stones within papillary cysts. I unroofed these cysts and a multitude of small stones came tumbling out. She too had significant improvement in her pain. But what were the main reasons why uh, patients uh, presented to me with papillary stones? The number one reason was and continues to be unrelenting flank pain. In a few instances, patients presented with episodic or continuous upper tract hematuria, and in even fewer presented with persistent single organism urinary tract infections. There are certain aspects of the history that I believe are important. The character of the pain, its intensity, location, and mitigating circumstances which alleviate or exacerbate the pain. On physical exam, I try and rule out costochondral pain, trigger points, myofascial pain, etc. I think it's, it's important to uh, find out whether there's a personal or a family history of medullary sponge kidney. And I always ask about what procedures they've had previously. Comorbidities such as depression, anxiety, chronic pain syndrome are very important and that these comorbidities are more likely to have a negative influence on outcome if a, re a relief of pain is the main goal. Patients who are taking opioids for pain control, I believe, are less likely to have lasting pain relief. Setting rational expectations, I think, is really important. And I tell patients what I can and cannot do. I can't remove all of their stones. And I can't guarantee that I'm going to uh, render them virtually pain-free. I also say that um, it may take more than one session uh, in order for them to get um, any significant uh, lasting pain relief. If patients are, are on opioids, I strongly recommend that they be seen by a pain specialist. And I often will engage the pain specialist in uh, management of their um, narcotic use uh, post-procedure. I have no strong feelings about using a butyl sheath. I use a basket to pluck stones which are adherent, and I do make every effort to not leave any stone fragment behind, and will use a laser to remove any residual stone. For subepithelial stones, I turn the Amy Bing off so that I have more pinpoint control of the fiber tip. Settings that I've used in the past are 0.6 joules and 6 to 8 hertz, nothing special. If I don't use an access sheath, I tend not to use a stent. And if there's no contraindication, I routinely use uh, IV Catorolac for pain control. 
these are examples of what I would laser and what I don't laser. The image on the left shows Randall's plaque on a papilla. I do not treat Randall's plaque. On the right, I think you can see tissue overlying obvious stone within these cyst-like structures. These are stones which I would treat by ablating the overlying epithelium. The laser is used to basically unroof the stones. I refrain from going deep uh, into the papilla to avoid any injury to the papilla. The laser is used to basically unroof the stones. Like I said, I don't use the aiming beam in the activated setting so that I have better visual control of the laser tip. And after unroofing additional stones, they come tumbling out, as you can see on the video, with irrigation. If there are larger stones within the cyst, I may use a laser to fragment them, but I do not go chasing stones deep within the papilla. My partners at Michigan were involved in a multi-institutional study looking at pain relief as the primary outcome in patients with papillary calcifications. There were 65 patients in this cohort, and of those 65, 50 had, significant fo had sufficient follow-up. And on a survey following their procedure, uh, approximately 83% of patients reported significant reduction in pain with a mean duration of 26 months. And 60% of those reported a reduction in pain lasting greater than a year. The rate of hospitalization for pain, for pain control after procedure was around 8%, which I think is typically a little bit higher than what uh, I would suspect. And of the 33 patients in which an effective GFR was available, both pre and post procedure, 23 were unchanged or increased with, with 10 showing a decrease in their effective GFR, but this uh, decrease was not cl clinically significant. While our experience was encouraging, other investigators did not have the same positive response. Stern and Munga reported on a small series of patients who underwent laser papillotomy, and they looked at narcotic use as the endpoint of the study. It's a small study of 10 patients. Two of five who had pre and post-op narcotic use data noted increase in their narcotic use. And of the 10, one patient developed heroin addiction and another patient required inpatient drug rehab, which prompted my editorial response when I reviewed this paper where I said, operating to, to reduce pain can be a perilous and sometimes dubious venture. So lessons learned. Patients with a history of substance abuse or chronic pain, I strongly consider working with a pain specialist to assist in managing post-procedure pain control. Avoid over-promising pain relief. From a technical standpoint, only uh, on roof uh, stones, which you can see. It may take more than one session. I do invoke the baseball rule. If no relief after three sessions, then I don't recommend proceeding any further. And finally, I would recommend patients undergo a metabolic evaluation. Well, thanks very much for having me. And I'd like to turn the discussion back over to Casey. Thanks so much, Gary. Um, really uh, helpful talk as we go forward with this case. Um, so as I asked our panelists before, what would you do? What I did in this case, uh, and this is 
uh, not a representative video of our case, but a representative video of an endopathelotomy that did go ahead and use uh, a 200 micron fiber with low settings to unroof um, some uh, papillary stones. And as Gary showed in his videos, they kind of just come tumbling out of the papilla. Unfortunately for me, and most unfortunate for the patient, um, significant bleeding was encountered, which obscured my visualization uh, during this attempt, even with uh, just papillary or uh, urothelial incision. So the question then, I guess I'd start with you, Gary, is how do you manage bleeding during ureteroscopy where you can no longer see? Um, I've had this happen on several occasions and uh, it is uh, quite disconcerting uh, where you have a complete red out. And I think the important uh, <clears throat> thing to remember is sort of keep your, keep your cool about yourself. Typically, if it's uh, if it's venous bleeding, it will stop if you increase the pressure uh, yeah. of the irrigation that you're using. If it's arterial, it doesn't matter what pressure you go to, you still will not be able to visualize anything. And uh, it's, it's never, I've never had an opportunity where I've been able to identify where an arterial bleeder is coming from. Uh, it's at that point that uh, I uh, um, sort of abandon the procedure. Uh, put a stent in, and uh, have, I have a very um, low threshold for sending somebody to um, either angiogram or get a CT angiogram nowadays uh, to see if you can local, localize where the bleeding is coming from. I think the important point is uh, understanding where you were doing your procedure to begin with. So if it's an upper pole, uh, it would be important for you to relay that information to your interventional radiologists who are doing the angiography to make sure that they pay special attention to uh, the upper pole moieties and so forth and so on, just to get a better, uh, I think, a better, a better study. But um, um, it's, it's disconcerting, to say the least. Yeah, uh, that's great feedback. I, I um remember this well, because it was very clear that we had gone from a straightforward procedure to one where uh, something else might be needed to fix the problem. Lynn, you had mentioned that you use the thulium fiber laser routinely. Have you had any success, like Gary mentioned, in identifying bleeders? Um, I know it's hard with arterial, but maybe during a urothelial tumor excision or something like that. What's your sense on that? I have. I have used it. Um, generally, I use... Uh, the, the Olympus loop for my TURBTs. And I have had, I, ha, I get some big tumors out here and, uh, and I have had some with significant bleeding and I have switched over to the tulium on the hemostatic setting. And it, it really works very nicely. And what about you, Carla? We mentioned increasing irrigation pressure. It's never the wrong decision to leave with a drainage with a stent or attempting to, uh, to, to tackle it with uh, a laser or the thulium fiber laser. Any other suggestions that you'd have? Well, I mean, I've used the laser as well. Um, I've just like Lynn said, used it in the bladder, used it sometimes even on the prostate, it, you know, just from different things. Um, um, another possibility is, is trying to hold pressure with the scope too directly. That could be another option too, just to to see. Um, and then a stent. I mean, if you really just can't see if everything is red, a stent would be. I, I, Casey, and I would echo what Carla just said, that putting the, the tip of the scope against it and just pressing and just wait, give it three minutes, four minutes. And just, and this like what Dr. Farber said that you need a little bit of 
down, just calm down. Everything's going to be okay. So I think that is a helpful maneuver. I have one question of the panel, and that is this. Um, what about flow seal? You can send it up the scope and you can put it right where you want it. Has anyone ever tried that? I, I have tried not. It in a, I think I've tried it through Flexible and it just won't go through. It all just gets congealed in the working channel. It doesn't go through the way you think. Mm. Yeah, interesting thought. I, I mean, I think that this is a, an area where, thankfully, at the time of ureteroscopy, this is an uncommon issue. Uh, but when it is, I think if you've tried all these conservative measures, the best part of Valor is to get a stent in so that they're drained. Um, so I'm going to move us on to the next slide, um, which kind of continues with the case. We, we talked about many of these options uh, of controlling intraoperative bleeding. Um, uh, I think a retrograde pilogram is always a good idea to make sure that you haven't frankly had a perforation. But uh, Dr. Farber mentioned increasing the irrigation pressure, which will mitigate most arterial, or excuse me, most venous bleeding, considering ablation either with electrocautery or with a, with a laser. Um, scope tip manual pressure was brought up, brought up by both Carla and Kershid. Uh, and then uh, certainly getting out with the ureteral stent plus or minus a Foley catheter uh, is, is probably the last uh, measure that should be undertaken here. In this particular case, uh, the retrograde pilogram showed no extravasation. I did identify that this was an interpolar calyx, uh, which was a highly important point that uh, Dr. Farber-Gary made. Uh, he is a tall gentleman, so I placed a six French by 28 centimeter stent uh, with plans to have this stay in dwelling so no string was placed. I observed him pretty closely for three hours in PACU. Uh, he uh, performed intermittent cath with some hematuria, but was able to empty his bladder. His labs were stable, uh, and his urine color appeared to be improving, so I discharged him to home um, with close clinical follow-up. Um, unfortunately, um, uh, on post-operative day two, he presented uh, to our emergency department with persistent hematuria uh, and some lightheadedness. Uh, he was seen by our consulting team uh, and a Foley catheter was placed uh, with irrigation performed, really showing minimal bleeding and no clot in the bladder. Um, labs were checked. Uh, his hemoglobin was at his baseline of 14.8 and this creatinine was at his baseline as well. Um, so uh, with close discussion with me, the decision was made uh, to discharge him uh, to home. Um, just to provide a bit of context, as Kirsch had mentioned, we collect a lot of data within the music uh, collaborative and music rocks in particular. Uh, and one of the founding principles of music rocks was to try to decrease emergency department visits after uh, outpatient surgery like shockwave lithotripsy and ureteroscopy. Uh, in this particular case, uh, we had an emergency department visit, which I will tell you is not all that uncommon after ureteroscopy. So if we look at more than 9,000 patients who have had ureteroscopy in the Music Rocks registry, our 30-day emergency department visit rate is around 7%, uh, and 16% of those patients present due to hematuria, a much lower proportion present due to something um, uh, grave like a uh, retroperitoneal hematoma or perinephric hematoma. So um, just to provide context here, although this is an unforeseen complication, it is something that happens with some frequency, both in the ROCKS registry as well as nationally. Mm. So as I mentioned, the patient was discharged after um, some uh, reassuring findings, but he did present back to the emergency department and was subsequently readmitted uh, a few days later. 
this time he presented with increasing hematuria and at this point required a Foley catheter due to some mild clot retention. His hemoglobin still hadn't dropped all that significantly. So you might recall during his first ER visit on post-operative day two, his hemoglobin was 14.8. It is now 13.9, but he has pretty significant hematuria from his Foley catheter. So my question to the panel now is what would you consider doing next? Is it venous or is it bright red blood? Uh, I would say uh, that it looked to me like it was cherry red blood. Mm. So I, if oh, sorry, or just no. to say if the kidney function was okay, I would do a CT angiogram. His I renal heard. function at this point is is okay, and so uh, good good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another point to consider initially too, I don't know if the patient was complaining of any pain, was just do a KUB and make sure your stent is in good position as well. Yep. Also a very good point. Um, I, I think, um, would, would either of you move directly to an IR angiogram at this point? No. Go ahead, I think Lynn. You consider it. I think you have to consider it because if he's got cherry red blood, and his hemoglobin is starting to drop, and he's coming in in clot retention. Things are not improving. It, it's not stopping. Is he on any any kind of blood thinners or? He is not. And said's nothing. Uh, he was definitely discharged on non-steroidals, um, but uh, he he is not on any blood thinners. Okay. I know personally, my IR department would not even want to see the patient till I did a CT angiogram. So I asked about the renal function, because if, if the renal function wasn't very good, I would have to call and say, I really can't afford to give two doses of contrast to this patient. So that would be one of the things I would consider with what would happen next for me. That's a good point, Carla. And we're going to hit on that in, in uh, some subsequent slides. So um we did uh, perform, and you can see a live uh, representation here, a CT angiogram, um, kind of highlighting both of your concerns for ongoing arterial bleeding. Um, and what we can see is in the left kidney, um, uh, there is clearly some chronic dilation. The ureteral stent is in appropriate position. I'll give you the cliff notes. There was no active arterial extravasation, though it did appear that there was some kind of old blood uh, in the collecting system, which fits with the clinical picture. Uh, of a uh, uh, patient who is having some ongoing hematuria. Um, he was admitted at this point and, and actually required some slow drip, uh, continuous bladder irrigation and monitoring uh, since this was his second emergency department visit. Um, I'm gonna bring in uh, Jim Shields now, who, uh, as I mentioned, is, is one of our expert interventional radiologists uh, has done thousands uh, of uh, angiograms as well as percutaneous nephrolithotomies. Um, in this particular case, Jim, the patient continued to have persistent uh, hematuria despite manual irrigation. And I guess my question to you is, what would you do? Uh, we brought up earlier the idea of a CT angiogram versus an IR angiogram. I wonder if you could speak to the differences in sensitivity and specificity between these, those two studies. And do you have any sort of reservations, as Carla mentioned, with a double contrast load if you start with a negative CTA and go to a formal IR angiogram. Uh, thank you, uh, Casey. Um, I agree with what was done here initially, which is the CT angiogram to start. Um, we still don't know, in spite of the color of the blood, we still don't know for sure if this is arterial or venous. 
as you know, most venous uh, bleeding will eventually stop. Um, however, after the CT angiogram was done and was negative, and the patient still was having indication that bleeding was ongoing, I think uh, I would go ahead and do a, a formal arteriogram. The, the contrast dose administered for a CT angiogram is fairly high. It exceeds 100 cc's. Um, we don't use that much contrast with a direct arteriogram because we're injecting directly into the kidney. And I think the I'm uh, not an alarmist when it comes to using uh, contrast material in these cases. I think the worst thing that we can do for renal function is to let the patient go hypotensive or something like that in, in the midst of this. So I think the sequence was correct. First, a CT arteriogram. The other advantage of a CT angiogram is you can often do that. Even if you don't have an interventional radiologist, you can do that at a, at a, a smaller hospital and get a feel for what's going on. And, and if you have to transfer the patient, you can arrange for that. Uh, so I think so far, I'm in agreement with exactly what happened here. And I think you bring up a good point, um, Jim, as well, which is that uh, he was not imaged during his first ED visit. And so the nice other benefit of a CT angiogram is that you get some anatomical information above and beyond what you'd get from the angiogram. Uh, insofar as to know where the stent is located, make sure that he doesn't have any evidence of extra renal extravasation of contrast or things like that, that we get from the CT angiogram. So I think that was helpful. Um, we did get a question um, from the chat. Uh, Dr. Rosenberg, Brad Rosenberg um, mentioned um, in a situation like this where his hemoglobin had admittedly not dropped that far, um, it's always preferable to try to avoid something like angioembolization in a young, healthy person. How about starting something like Amacar to stop the bleeding? I, I think you, you, you probably mean uh, IV Amacar, uh, Brad, mm -hmm. which I, I don't think is an inappropriate response. Um, uh, that is something that I will use uh, without much reservation, um, particularly in transurethral um, uh, uh, prostate uh, resections and things like that. I think... Um, trying to use intravesical Amacar in this case, uh, which I don't think is what you were suggesting would be a, a poor idea given the fact that he had clot burden in his bladder, but certainly thinking of some of these antifibrinolytics and things like that would be a, would be a really reasonable um, consideration. So thanks, thanks for, the, uh, um, for the comment. Uh, one more, um, uh, this is David Wensler. Um, indicating that his, at his institution, interventionalists really want a CT angiogram prior to any intervention. I think Carla clearly highlighted that. And I think that's going to be institution specific, um, but um, I would not disagree with that either. Uh, and you also get the anatomic information from the CTA, um, uh, which can help um, guide any further intervention. Um, so with that, as uh, Jim mentioned, we did go ahead with the patient's IR angiogram. Um, what you can see here on the CNA loop is that there was no active extravasation or pseudoaneurysm, no smoking gun that was found. Um, uh, and uh, unfortunately, post-procedurally, the patient continued to have hematuria requiring intermittent bladder uh, irrigation. So at this point, um, I'm really scratching my head and becoming uh, increasingly uneasy with the clinical situation. Uh, to make matters um, uh, slightly worse, um, uh, two days later, the patient experienced acute urinary retention uh, despite being on CBI, so clotted off his CBI. Um, developed severe left flank pain and became hypotensive, so uh, hemodynamically unstable for the first time 
He was resuscitated. Uh, we were able to clear out the clot and resume his continuous bladder irrigation, but due to his profound flank pain and hypotension, uh, I performed a non-contrast CT scan. What you can see here is that the picture has changed substantially. He has a essentially worsening hydronephrosis of the left kidney. Uh, and unfortunately, his left ureteral stent, uh, as you can see in the picture here, uh, has migrated into the mid to distal ureter. Uh, there has been a fornicil rupture and he now has free fluid around the kidney. So the question for the panelists now in the setting of his acute flank pain, migrated stent with obstruction and calisteal rupture with perinephric and retroperitoneal urinoma, what would be your next steps? Well, you have to replace his stent and you have to get IR. And he probably, although embolization is not the safest thing to do to people, especially someone who is as acutely ill as this, um, it's fraught with complications as well. He, he is in a bad way. He's, he's had a rupture and this needs to be addressed because it has gotten to the point where it's, it's uh, um, become uncontrolled. What are your thoughts on that, Carla? I agree 100% with stent replacement. Um, any other yeah, thoughts? I think, I mean, the other part with the hypertension and things of that nature too, I mean, part of it, we have to make sure we get all the clot out of the bladder um, and, you know, start a CBI. That's going to be a lot of the also discomfort in addition to, of course, doing a retrograde and replacing the stent to help to kind of get some imaging too and kind of see what's going on. Yeah. And I think you guys nailed both points. So um, the first thing is uh, unobstructing the patient. Um, so he was taken to the operating room urgently that night uh, on cystoscopy. There was organized clot found in the bladder, which was irrigated out. Um, uh, I placed a six French catheter alongside his existing stent to facilitate a retrograde pilogram. I didn't push hard. I'm sure there was extravasation, but it wasn't seen. Um, I did place a longer stent um, and a larger stent to try to facilitate drainage of some of the clot material in the kidney. Uh, and then uh, replaced a larger catheter to start him on continuous bladder irrigation. Uh, as he continues on through the next three days, he continues to have ongoing hemorrhagic anemia. This is the first time that he requires blood transfusion. So he, over the course of those three days, requires seven units of packed red blood cells, uh, though remains hemodynamically stable. At this point, as I think many of my colleagues uh, may have done with similar challenging uh, cases, I loaded the boat, so to speak, um, involving hematology to make sure I wasn't missing some form of coagulopathy, surgical critical care, um, as well as uh, our interventional radiology colleagues to understand whether there was any advanced bleeding protocols or interventional measures that we could undertake uh, to try to rescue this situation. Um, that culminated in the decision to perform another uh, uh, formal angio, or excuse me, uh, renal angiogram. The thought being that there might have been some, you know, vasospasm or something where we missed things. And now the clinical picture has changed because he's requiring um, he's requiring blood transfusion, and we saw that there was a perinephric process going on after stent migration and fornicil rupture. Um, but unfortunately, that angiogram too was negative. Um, uh, we required ongoing stabilization and anemia workup. 
And with the help of our surgical critical care colleagues, uh, they recommended initiating a GI bleeding protocol, um, uh, which relied on the use of uh, intravenous tranexamic acid. So the next question to the group is, are any of you uh, or any of those in the chat uh, or even Gary, you using uh, TXA as it's called or tranexamic acid for bleeding for urologic indications? I have not. Casey, I don't have any personal experience with it, but I do know some of my colleagues do. So I, I can, and I've not used it either. So I can tell you in the urologic literature, there's been some recent uh, studies looking at its use around percutaneous nephrolithotomy, specifically for very complex stones as you use the guy's stone score, um, which have shown that it decreases the risk of uh, clinically significant bleeding need for transfusion and may actually improve visualization such that you don't need secondary procedures. That comes at a potential cost, which is that it may be prothrombotic. But what's interesting is, uh, and what was highlighted to me uh, by our uh, uh, surgical critical care colleagues is that there was a very large systematic review and meta-analysis looking at that very question, does TXA both help with cessation of bleeding, uh, but also uh, um, uh, increase your risk for thromboembolic events. And so this study included more than 100,000 patients, primarily in the general surgery and cardiac surgery realm. And they found that hemorrhage-related mortality was lower in those that got TXA. So it worked. It did what we wanted it to do. But there was no increased risk of thromboembolic events with TXA administration. So uh, kind of bolstered by this evidence uh, and thinking outside the box, uh, we transitioned in this patient to initiating this bleeding protocol, relying primarily on TXA. Um, I, I, I can't tell you how remarkable it was to see a patient who went from requiring blood transfusions every time we got a CVC to initiating an IV drip of TXA and seeing that his hematuria resolved within 24 hours. It, it, I, I honestly felt like I was witnessing a miracle, uh, especially since at this point, it's 22 days after initial surgery and you're just, and, and we'll talk about this in the second half of the talk, you're just, you are emotionally fried, no matter what you've done. His hemoglobin remained stable on this uh, protocol. This protocol required that he transition to an oral uh, TXA regimen with the plans for discharge. Uh, and he was able to be discharged with the Foley and Stenton uh, place with the plan for follow-up in four days. Casey, if it's not too much trouble, do you mind just going back a couple of slides? Because I don't think the audience saw your slide that showed the study you were mentioning here. That's it. The, the JAMA study. This is what you related to. Thank you. So, um, unfortunately, um, uh, our uh, Joy was short-lived, uh, and he was readmitted again uh, approximately seven days after his last discharge. He presented with pleuritic chest pain, um, and unfortunately, uh, PE protocol CT uh, indicated that the patient had bilateral pulmonary emboli. Um, hematology was consulted, uh, and he was started on a, a heparin uh, infusion. This resulted in significant worsening of his hematuria, as well as hemodynamic instability. And for the first time, the patient required admission to the surgical intensive care unit. You can see from the CT scan, um, which I can loop again, that his kidney on the left-hand side um, is uh, essentially chock full of uh, significant blood. Uh, stent remains in good position, but uh, we're now kind of moving backwards again. 
uh, which was incredibly frustrating for the patient. Because he couldn't tolerate anticoagulation, the decision was made to place an uh, inferior vena cava filter uh, such that we could uh, hold his heparin and hope that there would be no further propagation of uh, emboli. He required continued blood transfusions for anemia and hematuria despite cessation of his heparin infusion. Um, at this point, um, I'd like to bring back in um, Jim, uh, who is our expert and, and really assisted me at this point in the case. Um, I think I said to you, Jim, that there has to be bleeding there. I know that we've missed it. Even if it means you need to make bleeding, can you please find it? Uh, because we were so at the end of our ropes. Can you tell me if there's a role here for a further angiogram and, and what type you might consider? Uh, yes, Casey, I think absolutely this person needs another angiogram. This is unquestionably arterial bleeding. And there are things that we can do to stimulate bleeding. Uh, during an arteriogram, for us to make a diagnosis of bleeding, he has to be actively bleeding at the exact few seconds that that contrast is, is uh, traveling through the kidney. And that's the problem we have. So if his blood pressure is a little bit low or his, his circulating volume is a, a little bit low, his bleeding may stop. And we see that frequently with GI bleeding. Um, and it's very frustrating for us. So there are things that we do, there are drugs that we can give intra-arterially that um, enhance bleeding. Um, one other thing that's useful to us, and we knew in this case, because we knew exactly what you did, is exactly what part of the kidney are we looking at? Because we are willing to sacrifice some renal tissue, even if we don't see bleeding. If you tell me you are at six o'clock in this kidney um, in the lower pole, we can selectively take out some of those branches with uh, coil embolization, even if we don't see bleeding. But we certainly like to see bleeding before we would do something like that. But he's at the point, I think, where I would be more than happy to just say, let's, let's knock off 20% uh, of this lower pole and stop his bleeding. Those are all great points. And I, I actually will never forget the discussion that we had going into this angiogram. Um, Gary, Barbara, my question to you is, have you had indications or situations at either with the ureteroscopy or PCNL where you've had to go to such an extreme measure um, interventionally? Yes. <laughs> the short answer. Yes, I've had, I did a laser papillotomy on somebody who uh, had a, a similar scenario that you described here. Um, and um, uh, fortunately, and I've had it with uh, percutaneous procedures as well. Um, so I have a fairly low threshold to uh, get my uh, angi uh, my IR uh, angiographers uh, involved in in cases like this, where it's it's clearly obvious that this is arterial bleeding. So to the point that was made, um, we performed uh, what was coined a provocative angiogram, um, which involved administration of a TPA. Um, you know, I, I would have never thought of this. Uh, into the renal artery. And what you can see for the first time is in the lower pole. I should highlight our initial procedure was in the interpolar region, but he developed bleeding in hindsight because he perforated at the time of obstruction from his stent migration at the lower pole. And that was seen on prior CTs. But you can see clearly a blush of arterial pooling there in the lower pole. And for the first time, we kind of had what we thought was the smoking gun uh, and three lower pole branches were selectively coiled in this patient. 
Um, so I think the teaching point from this slide is um, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, even if you missed it two times and on a CTA. And it really was a testament to the persistence of our angiographers and thinking outside the box to find this. Um, and, and it ultimately saved the patient. So Gary, if I could add, um, the way we uh, approach these in, in terms of inducing um, um, hematuria, the first drug we would start with typically would be heparin, which doesn't uh, doesn't um, you know it's not fibrinolytic, but it it sometimes will enhance bleeding as it did in this patient when it was given systemically. We will give nitroglycerin intraarterially, which reduces vasospasm, and finally we'll give a TPA or alteplase, which is fibrinolytic and will actually break down any thrombus that's formed temporarily. We also occasionally use carbon dioxide, which is a gas. It's much more, uh, the vessels are much more permeable to it. So we can see carbon dioxide leaking out of an artery much more easily than we can see blood leaking out of an artery or con uh, liquid contrast uh, leaking out of an artery. So that's kind of the sequence of events that we go through. And I think, Jim, you bring up a really interesting point. Um, I uh, in involved um, Dr. Lena Napolitano, who for those outside of the University of Michigan is, is world renowned in uh, surgical critical care. And it was her idea to begin TXA with the whole premise being that the problem that we were facing here was an unstable clot that was forming. And so it wasn't able to adequately tamponade this area. And so the the whole goal behind the TPA is even if there was a poorly cross-linked clot there, that the TPA would be able to um, cause that to break down enough that we could identify that at the time of angiography. And again, I think that's really what um, uh, benefited us here was taking us through that stepwise approach of heparinization, plus or minus, uh, uh, you know, uh, nitroglycerin, and then finally going to the TPA. And you can see here that we had the results that we finally needed. I, I can't. I can't underemphasize how important it is to be communicating with your interventional radiologist so that they really understand exactly what you're trying to do uh, because they were able to work wonders in this case. Gary, you'll also see from this arteriogram that when you know, when you can tell us exactly what you did and where you did it, we can take out those lower pole branches and save probably 95% of that kidney, even if we didn't see the bleeding. So um, I'm going to provide um, uh, some closing and then a bit of a summary of the case since it was a drawn out process for the patient. But finally, post-operative day 50, uh, to conclude his second readmission, uh, the patient uh, was able to remain hemodynamically stable without significant hematuria or transfusion requirements for more than three days after his uh, embolization and was discharged home with a stent, uh, which I removed in the office approximately four weeks later. Uh, his renal function stayed uh, completely stable at around 1.1, which was his preoperative value despite embolization. Um, so to provide some chronology here uh, and, and, and close the case, uh, this all began with Gary, a relatively... Add, if I could add one final sure. thing. About a month later, we also took out his IBC filter. That's right. The filter is out as well. Um, he, he was never put back on anticoagulation. It was felt by the hematology team that that would be unsafe. And thankfully, uh, he had no further issues um, with uh, pulmonary embolism propagation. Um, so um, uh, this case began with a relatively innocuous ureteroscopy with laser lithotripsy and endopapillotomy. Uh, significant bleeding was encountered, um, which resulted in an initial presentation to the emergency department, which we learned from the registry happens in approximately 7% of cases, 
14% of those are due to bleeding. Um, despite being discharged, hematuria persisted. Uh, this was quite uh, an ordeal for the patient uh, in, in that he required 11 units of blood during his initial hospitalization, had a take back to the operating room for clot evacuation and stent migration, had two negative angiograms uh, with apparent cessation of bleeding with TXA, which we learned uh, is something to keep in your back pocket when we're dealing with urologic bleeding. Unfortunately, despite the literature suggesting that there's no increased risk of thromboembolic events, I attribute that to being bedbound and not on subcutaneous heparin um, for his lengthy first hospitalization. Uh, he did develop a, D, a P, PE and DVT, which required heparinization. That exacerbated his hematuria, ultimately requiring uh, his final provocative angiogram, which we learned uh, from Dr. Shields about uh, a great deal. Uh, which ultimately caused uh, um, cessation of his bleeding. All told, his hospitalization uh, spanned uh, more than uh, 39 inpatient days, and from the time of surgery uh, was more than 50 days for the patient. So um, uh, I uh, would like to um, uh, turn things over uh, now to Dr. Kershid Ghani, who's going to take us into the second portion of this webinar. And again, thank you so much to our panelists and for everyone's attention and great questions in the chat. Thank, thank you, Casey. Uh, and thank you to all the panelists, as you said. A couple of comments with that in the chat, uh, Casey, you've had Dr. Pemintel, uh, Dr. Taze and others say that, yes, they have had experience of using TXA for the right reasons, like just like you did. So uh, I, I want to uh, applaud you for your courage to present uh, this complication to the wider audience. Uh, it was a protracted complication around 39 days, inpatient stay, as you said. And so now we're going to switch gears and, and, and talk about uh, the surgeon's aspect when facing these difficult adverse events and these major complications. And so I'm now going to introduce our next speaker. It's Dr. Kevin Turner, who is a consultant neurological surgeon at Royal Bournemouth Hospital and a visiting professor at Bournemouth University. In 2015, he co-founded the Bournemouth University Surgeon Wellbeing Research Team uh, with the Department of Psychology. And his group uh, aims to generate original research data concerning the impact of adverse events on surgeons and to develop and trial novel interventions to ameliorate that impact. Uh, Dr. Turner trained in urology in Oxford, Edinburgh, where I had the good fortune to meet him and also did his fellowship training in Melbourne. He is a urologic oncologist and he was awarded the Hunterian Professorship from the Royal College of Surgeons for his research in renal cancer. He's also the co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Urological Surgery. So uh, we're really um, um, thankful that he's here joining us live from the UK. And now we're gonna hear from him and learn more about how surgeons cope with adverse events. Thank you, uh, Kevin. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Ghani. It's uh, a delight and a great pleasure to be able to join you from the UK for what is uh, a fascinating session. Um, I'm here to talk about how surgeons cope with adverse events. And uh, I represent uh, a small team at Bournemouth University here in the UK, uh, which I co-founded um, a few years ago. And our team uh, is comprised of several psychologists, um, a couple of PhD students and uh, one surgeon who is me. And uh, our team uh, really set out to look at three things. 
In the area of the impact of adverse events on surgeons, we want to talk about what's the problem. And we want to move beyond descriptive data um, to some objective data, because I think objective data acts as a lever for change. We're also very interested in whether surgeons can prepare for the impact of adverse events. These are an inevitable consequence of surgical life, given that they're going to happen to all of us. Can we be prepared for the impact they have upon us? And we're very interested in what happens after the event, given that surgeons have for all time been impacted by things going wrong in surgery and will continue to be so. What can be done, uh, done after the event to ameliorate that potentially negative impact? So that's our team and that's what we've set out to do over the last five years or so. Um, and the answer to um, how do surgeons cope with adverse events is not very well. And as I've already intimated, this is a problem which is not new. It is in fact as old as surgery itself. Uh, René Lariche is one of my surgical heroes. He was one of those frustrating surgical polymaths who could turn his hand uh, to many things. And you're probably familiar with his uh, eponymous syndrome of aortoiliac insufficiency. But he, he said this powerful quote, every surgeon carries within themselves a small cemetery where from time to time they go to pray, a place of bitterness and regret where they must look for an explanation for their failures. Now, I don't know when René Lariche said this, but those are the dates that he was alive. And so if he was roughly mid-career when he said this, let's say perhaps he was in his 40s, then he probably said this around about 100 years ago. But of course, surgeons had been aware, for this, aware of this for many years since, uh, any, many years before and for every year since. Um, there's plenty of literature that, uh, uh, from which I could quote where similar emotions are um, explained. And I put on this slide two quotes um, for a US audience from the US literature. Uh, the first from you, who is a transplant surgeon in Stanford, who said in 2017, so very contemporary, no other profession that demands elite performance has devoted so little to the well-being of its practitioners. And the next quote from the Boston Interoperative Surgical Adverse Events Study, again from 2017, from a surgical trainee. And as we may touch on, there are some trainee-specific issues in all of this. We all hide our grief, suffer in silence. The pain can be close to debilitating. Um, and I guess one of the reasons I became involved in looking at this is that I think there is a problem with the literature about this problem. Uh, there's a whole wealth of descriptive data. There is uh, um, incidence and prevalence data about, uh, the, about burnout, about depression, uh, about, the about surgeon well-being in the broadest sense. And some of that data uh, links um, surgeon psychological health to adverse events. But there's, but there's a lot of description and not that much objectivity. This literature is part of a much broader literature about doctors' well-being, and there are too few surgeons represented in that literature. And I know I'm speaking to a sympathetic audience when I contend that there are some unique or nearly unique things about surgical practice that make this much more acute for us than it is for our physician colleagues. And of course, I recognize that interventionalists in cardi cardiology and gastroenterology and our friends in interventional radiology will resonate with some of this. 
But I would still contend that it's only surgeons who really appreciate the link or perceived link between their actions or inactions and uh, a potential adverse event. Uh, and then with a degree of boldness, dare I say that too much of this literature is US-centric. And of course, um, much of this is translatable across all surgeons in all nations because there are similarities in what we all do. But there are differences in a setup and culture. Uh, and I felt a need to look beyond the borders of the US to describe some of this. And as we may have time to come on to, too much of the literature conflates error and complication. And although I'd be the first to admit that there is an overlap, and that overlap is quite a broad grey area, there is a difference between these two, which I think could be relevant to discussions in this area. So um, going back to our three targets, uh, what we've tried to do is to put some um, put some objective data into this area. And I'm very pleased to say that just within the last couple of weeks, uh, we published a paper in the British Journal of Surgery looking at the impact of adverse events uh, on surgeons in the UK. Uh, there isn't time for me to go through all our results, but just to um, explain that we found that adverse events make surgeons feel awful. And when I say awful, I mean absolutely awful. 50% of surgeons who were asked to recall an adverse event said that they were uh, they were 50% more likely, likely to feel, oh, sorry, forgive me, 50% of respondents said they felt increasingly anxious as a result of being involved in an adverse event. Roughly the same proportion admitted to increased problems with anger or irritability. 42% said their sleep was disrupted. 10% drank more alcohol. 30% reported two of the key diagnostic aspects of PTS symptomatology, things like intrusive thoughts, um, excessive rumination, or avoiding situations that cause them to recollect the event. And fascinatingly, almost everyone agreed that surgical training should prepare a surgeon for an adverse event, but almost no one thought that it did. So that's a snapshot of some of our own findings. Just focusing on talking about it, 43% of our respondents spoke to no one at all about the impact of an adverse event that an adverse event has had upon them. And when I say no one at all, I mean no one at all. Uh, and in that, I include not their families, not their colleagues. Only 1.6% accessed a specific local or national support service. And yet our respondents, perhaps unsurprisingly, said that talking about an adverse event was extremely useful to them. Useful, but not done. So in summary, we found that surgeons in the UK, at least, and I suspect uh, more widely, are profoundly and frequently affected by adverse events. That there is depth and breadth to this personal impact, anxiety, anger, sleep, alcohol, PTS. There is depth and breadth to the professional impact in terms of decision-making, obsessive checking, avoiding certain procedures, and so forth. It's clear that we as surgeons must talk to each other about this. It's clear we're not prepared for this. And it's clear that we don't deal well with this when it happens. Could we be prepared? Can we do better post-event? Well, preparation would be better than cure. Uh, I don't have time to expand on this, but we have completed a randomized controlled trial. We think first in this space, or nearly first, a randomized controlled trial of surgical trainees. And we've done that because the broader psychology resilience literature tells us that resilience is, a, is something that can be measured and there are validated measures of doing so. It tells us that resilience itself is not resilient. It's not static. You're not born with a certain quantum of resilience that stays with you for the rest of your life. 
nor are you born with a certain quantum of resilience get, that gets eroded or taken away by adverse events. Resilience itself can be enhanced. And there's a broad recognition of that in the occupational psychological literature. And, and by the way, my friends, uh, and I hope this isn't a disappointment to you, surgeons aren't particularly resilient anyway. And much as we think that it's the tough that go into surgery, in fact, it is the truth that we are ordinary people with ordinary levels of resilience doing an extraordinary job. So with that as a background, we set, to look, we set out to see whether or not um, preparation in terms of psychological flexibility and resilience enhancement um, was something that could be done in, a, in, a, in the context of surgical trainees. Um, why do we need to do this? Well, I've taken the liberty here of uh, quoting from uh, Scott Egner, part of this uh, great webinar, who said this in his New York Times article in 2015. A predominant portion of my adult life has been dedicated to studying and training to be a cancer surgeon. My first independent job was at age 35. I put in my time, but nothing prepared me for this. So preparation here, I, I think we'd be foolish if we ignored that uh, as an important emphasis. Uh, so as I've intimated, we've done a multi-site uh, randomized controlled trial of around 80 surgical trainees receiving one-to-one, -one, two-hour sessions, three two-hour sessions, um, looking at some uh, resilient skills-based training using, using an accepted intervention called ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, um, supported by a pilot of 10 trainees uh, where we were able to demonstrate uh, improvements from baseline measures and that RCT is completed and in the process of being writing up of being written up and I hope it's something that in the future it might be possible to share with you and we're excited about that. But what Dr. Ghani has really asked me to focus on for uh, the bulk of what of the time we have this evening is what about after the event? Preparation will only take us so far. We will all be affected by such events. Uh, what about our response as a surgical community um, to the aftermath of a significant adverse event? Uh, and we have to do this. Uh, I'm going to share with you some more quotes. I felt, and I should say, this is a quote from a urological surgeon, one of us, one of our own. And this is a urological surgeon who made an error uh, of identification during a laparoscopic procedure. Uh, the error resulted in um, clamping and division of the superior mesenteric artery. Uh, and uh, whilst it was subsequently recognized, uh, the patient died as a result of that uh, anatomic identification error. I felt and feel very guilty, but I remain disappointed by the lack of support from my employer. I felt I was treated like a criminal first, rather than any duty of care to me as an employee doing his job. I found it very difficult to talk about at home. It was the only, only the support of my colleagues that enabled me to get through that period. This from a consultant general surgeon. I don't think the institutions have any knowledge of the difficulties that their consultants face and to my knowledge, there are no mechanisms for support at all. If a surgeon mucks up, the hospital's response is to suspend them. And finally, it always feels callous to talk about the impact on yourself as a surgeon when you know the family have suffered so much more. Unfortunately, my hospital didn't really know how to handle me or the process. 
and I was not well supported. Uh, allow me a brief aside here because this slide reminds me, uh, and I'm always at pains to, to say this when I talk about our work, that we recognize that the greatest impact and the greatest harm is done to the affected patient and those who love them. And nothing that we do ever seeks to, let, seeks to lessen um, that impact or to undervalue it in any way. Um, but it's important to say that that surgeons are second casualties, uh, a term I prefer to, to second victims. And the other thing this uh, run of slides reminds me is that time and time again, surgeons have told us that if their hospitals are good at anything or prioritize anything, it is the regulatory aspects um, of, what, of uh, responding to an adverse event, making sure duty of candor is being fulfilled, making sure medical legal uh, bases are covered. But the, the well-being of the surgeon involved in an adverse event is frequently overlooked. Um, and in fact, this was a strand of our work that we hadn't gone looking for, but which was thrust upon us. And it was because of um, quotes like that sent to us when we began to talk about our survey and our randomized controlled study. Um, and that caused us to convene a working party. We called it SAFAR, Surgical Adverse Events First Aid Response. Um, and these are the members of our working party. I realized that um, some of these organizations won't be familiar to you, but suffice it to say that we pulled together um, those people that we regarded key stake as key stakeholders. So surgeons, psychologists, representatives of the Royal College of Surgeons of England, experienced medical managers, uh, representatives from the British Medical Association, which is the doctor's trades union here in the UK, academics from Bournemouth University, which I represent, the Medical Defence Union, one of the largest and most well-established uh, providers of professional indemnity cover, uh, and NHS Practitioner Health, a healthcare service focusing particularly on the psychological well-being of doctors. And we uh, gathered these um, people together and we had a number of roundtable discussions, first of all, about what they could contribute into this space, but also about the statutory responsibilities that the organisations that they represented had uh, in this sort of scenario. Uh, and that working party led to this report, um, Supporting Surgeons After Adverse Events. It's in a series from the Royal College of Surgeons of England. Um, their series is called Good Practice Guides. They publish uh, two or three a year. Uh, this has been out about 14, 15 months, uh, and it's freely available from the Royal College of Surgeons of England website. Um, and I've listed there some of the things that we looked at. We looked at aspects of hospital and surgical culture, which were perhaps unhelpful. Um, when it came to supporting surgeons after adverse events, we looked at various organisational structures. We looked at the statutory and regulatory responsibilities which exist in the UK, and many of those will uh, be the same as those which uh, apply to you. We looked at issues specific to trainees, uh, and we looked at issues specific to private practice, uh, where perhaps potentially the individual focus on a surgeon and the professional fallout after an adverse event may be greater uh, than in their routine health service practice here in the UK. Um, but again, I've been asked particularly to focus on the surgical first responder. Uh, and this was a concept that came out of our discussions. What do I mean by that? We recognize that there is a need um, for an affected surgeon to draw alongside another surgeon promptly to give them support, focus predominantly on their well-being. Uh, we felt the surgical first responder should be a credible, mature, 
experienced surgeon, uh, skilled in um, displaying empathy, uh, compassionate, non-adversarial, so not involved directly in um, the event or the investigation of it or in any professional sanctions that may come from it. Um, Non-adversarial, as I've said, um, a patient individual and someone with whom uh, who is could be described as psychologically minded, familiar with and comfortable with uh, addressing aspects of surgical psychology. Um, and we felt that there should be a meeting between the supporting surgeon and the surgeon needing to be supported, that this should be prompt, it should be face-to-face. -face. We threw around this idea of whether it should be mandatory, and I'm very happy to pick that up in questions. But if not mandatory, then we felt it should be default, um, that we felt that there doesn't have to be evidence of harm, but there just needs to be evidence of incident. And this is really important because if you put the onus on the affected surgeon to come forward and say, I need help, then we know that surgical inertia is such that surgeons are fabulously poor at engaging in this kind of process. So we need to demystify this and make it routine. As I've intimated, it should be independent of statutory and regulatory processes and with a prime focus on surgeon well-being. And the surgical first responder meeting addresses some of these things. What happened? What support do you have? Are you able to work? If so, in what context? Let's talk about a timeline for dealing with this. Do we need to address other staff involved? Let's address aspects of the clinical record, uh, contact with your professional indemnity organization, and so forth. And those of these things may sound simple. Surgeons have told us that they're lost in a melee of confusion and need help to navigate through this. Uh, we developed a uh, checklist. Uh, the detail here is not important, perhaps just the categories down the side. Uh, and they pick up on those that I've already shown you. And we just give uh, a few bullet points for each one to make sure that some key things are covered. And, and a single meeting may be enough, um, but these questions, we hope, will allow, allow us to reveal where greater help or assistance may be required. Um, and so these are, these are those questions and categories. Uh, we're not the only people doing this, and I felt this was important to uh, to highlight this. Um, there is uh, an excellent online resource, and this one from the United States, the Betsy Lehman Center, uh, clearly has done a great deal of work in supporting physicians generally um, after adverse events, and you'll find useful resources on their website. Um, and finally, just to answer the question, does it work? Um, I can only find a, a single paper in the literature uh, that explores the impact of a surgery-specific uh, support program for a second casualty. Uh, this uh, published from Massachusetts General, I think, in 2019, looking at one-year experience in a large surgical uh, center uh, and 47 interventions, very similar to our program, very similar themes, um, and um, at all levels, both the supporting surgeon and the surgeon receiving support, this was found to be a very positive thing. So uh, what comes out of this? Well, uh, it's my belief that we should, in every hospital where surgery takes place, have some sort of surgeon first responder team. Uh, and if not in every hospital, why not in every specialty? And, and I'm exploring with uh, urology in the UK whether we could do this on a specialty basis. Let's face it, urologists are nice people and we should 
we're willing to and should be supporting each other in this way. And what would it look like if we uh, put resilience training into the surgical curriculum? We teach each other so many things to prepare for senior surgeon life. Uh, and yet we've been ignorant and blinded to the fact that we may be able to help each other prepare for this so that in some way the impact may be mitigated. Um, my time has gone and I've really enjoyed talking to you. I acknowledge the uh, large SAFAR team that I alluded to in my slide earlier. And here's the list of those represented in that writing group and their organizations. Um, my team at Bournemouth University, the academics that I work with, um, my uh, my co-workers at the Royal College of Surgeons of England, uh, those who have contributed funding to directly to PhD students and the surgeons, of course, who've involved with and engaged with our work. I'm so grateful to you for uh, listening to me. I've enjoyed sharing with you um, and I'd love to hear from you with comments or questions about what we have done. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Kevin. Thank you, Dr. Turner, for that uh, lecture that was phenomenal. Uh, I think we've all learnt a lot uh, about the work that you're doing and others have done in this space. Uh, I. We we do uh, want to get your thoughts on how music as a group can learn from you uh, later on. But, you know, Casey has just uh, taken us through uh, his adverse event that was uh, very difficult, as you can see, but a good outcome. The patient did well eventually. I'd like to introduce you to uh, Dr. Dow. And because I know that uh, uh, this next section, I would like you and Casey to maybe explore what he went through and get his thoughts. Yeah, thank you, Kershid. And uh, let me say again, what a pleasure it is to um, join you from um, the UK um, this morning, my time. Um, two openings, Dr. Garney said, that to bear your soul uh, in public uh, is a brave thing to do. Um, and um, I'm very grateful to you for doing so. Um, I want to ask you, first of all, um, about how you felt. This was a 50-day uh, experience for you. Um, what did it feel like? Yeah, I mean, I've reflected on this so many times. I think uh, even just going through the case, what I recognized is during the first admission, I just felt confident that we were going to come to a good solution and that you know you would bide your time and that uh, we would figure this situation out. Uh, and when we kept hitting setback after setback after setback, I think the thing that really creeped into my psyche was just despair that this was not going to get better and that I was failing in my role as the provider to navigate the patient through this. Sure. And I mean, you, you clearly spoke to people regularly about the technical aspects of the problem you faced. And, and that was my second comment, really, that as a urologist, although not as an endourologist, uh, it's profoundly impressive to see how you and your team solved this um, problem. Did you talk to people about did you talk to people then or subsequently about how you uh, how you felt about it rather than the technical aspects of how you might solve the problem? Yeah, um, you know, I think I. I come from a division um, that has four other expert endourologists that I consider friends as well as colleagues. And so, um, you know, I was early on trying to just manage things on my own. But when I realized that I was um, struggling both 
um, interpersonally and emotionally, as well as clinically in the situation, it was more reaching out to them as friends and lifelines. Um, so yeah, I definitely did. And, um, it's interesting, Kevin, because what they wanted to come back at me with was, oh, you're doing all the right things. This clinical situation is going to be fine. But it took a while for them to begin to ask like, hey, man, are you okay? Right. Uh, it was first first focus on the patient. But then I think they recognized by the frequency of my calls and how I was handling things that maybe I wasn't quite okay. And and this next question may be uh, too probing and forgive me if it is, but but was this an error or was it a complication? Uh, did you make a mistake or were you just unlucky? I think about that all the time. Um, I, I don't know that I would do anything differently when faced with a similar case. Um, uh, so I don't necessarily see it as, a, as an error. I, I would say that um, I, I am definitely a little bit more selective in how cavalier I will be with endoscopy um, because um, I've recognized now that the decisions that you make, even if they seem mundane, have profound consequences. And so uh, I, I think I answered your question in two ways. I would view this as a complication, not necessarily a mistake, but in the back of my mind, is this complication any time I'm considering doing what I did in this case? Sure. And and finally, if I if we're still okay for time, and you gave testament to the excellent training that you had to become an endurologist, and clearly you were taught a great deal uh, about how to be an excellent endurologist. Did anyone ever say to you during your training, just to let you know, Casey, when when you become a senior surgeon, just to warn you, some really really bad things are going to happen because that is the inevitable accompaniment of the surgical life, and this is how you are going to feel about it, or did they just? tell you, I don't mean just, but did they just tell you how to fire a laser? Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of both. But Kevin, I think you can, what maybe brought you into this research arc in your career is recognizing that the expertise component of our training far outpaces the dealing with the fallout of complications component. I've seen senior surgeons struggle when I was a resident uh, and a fellow but I was never in their house and seeing how that translated to how they talked to their kids and how they dealt with their spouse and how they behaved when no one was looking, which is really uh, what is the dark and challenging aspect of dealing with these complications. Um, so I, I would say that it was always there, but was it uh, uh, ever shared with me on a personal level? Probably not to the detail that it would have helped me in this case. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Kevin, and thank you, Casey. And we'll have more time to discuss uh, later on in the panel discussion with all our, all our speakers. And also, please send in your questions into the chat. I, I'll now uh, take gives me great uh, pleasure to introduce our next uh, guest uh, keynote speaker, and that's uh, Dr. Scott Egner, who is a urologic oncologist and the Bruce and Beth White Family Professor of Surgery and Radiology. He is the vice chair of the section of urology at the University of Chicago. Scott is a very well-recognized urologic uh, oncologist, has published more than 250 papers, uh, and is a, an all-round wonderful person. Uh, I, I know that because I've had to inter interact with him for the last few weeks, and he's giving us his great time on this uh, uh, panel. Uh, but he's also on the board of the International Volunteers in Urology and spends a lot of his time uh, doing charitable work for good causes. So thank you, Scott. Uh, the reason Scott's here is that in 2015, he wrote a very poignant article in the New York Times about his experience 
uh, when he had to uh, deal with a major complication. So uh, I'd like to welcome Dr. Egner. Thank you for, for your talk. I wanted to thank Dr. Ghani and Music for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this session for quite a while, primarily to listen to the other speakers and also all the participants, you know, questions and roundtable and sharing their experiences. I think we'd all agree this is an incredibly important topic uh, that requires more attention in training and for those that are out of training. Uh, front and center, obviously, when you have a complication is to prioritize the patient and their family, and that's a whole separate discussion. But today's topic is taking care of ourselves and the emotional struggle. And how I got here is highly likely to be this article I wrote about seven years ago, and I want to briefly tell you what led to this. So I had done a IVC thrombectomy along with a vascular surgeon, and it was a you know, chunky thrombus, big case. And the short summary is the guy bled out on the table and died. And that experience was the most devastating thing that had ever happened in my professional career. And I had ruminated and perseverated about it. And I couldn't get it out of my head. I wasn't sleeping. I couldn't function. I literally couldn't have meals or normal conversations and just kept going over and over it again. How did this happen? What could have been done differently before or during the surgery, and I was in a really, really, really bad place. Uh, I had multiple strategies that I'll get to later for self-healing, but one of those for me was weeks or even months after I took pen to paper, and I'm, I'm not a natural writer. I don't do it regularly except for academic stuff, um, but I found it really healthy. And so over the course of many months and probably six to nine months after the event, I had crafted this final essay and I shared it with the vascular surgeon that I worked with. And his initial response was, you got to put this out there because this is such a universal experience for surgeons. And it would, you know, it's really um, helpful uh, for people to read it and understand it. So I put it out there and that's likely you know, how I got here today. There's a ton to talk about and each of these topics could be a separate talking of itself, but things I wanted to throw out there. Um, and Dr. Ghani and I had, had thought, you know, limiting my talk to maybe 10 minutes max and maximizing the time others had to talk or um, people sharing their experiences. But after I published it, I literally got hundreds upon hundreds of emails, texts, phone calls, comments on the website, and uh, the universality of it amongst uh, surgeons or even non-surgeon physicians was really striking. Tons of comments from patients, not mine, some were mine, um, family members of patients who had experienced complications, clergy, uh, and, and many other randoms. And it was really uh, helpful to hear the input. Uh, I would say 90, 95% of it was really supportive and said all the things that you'd expect. Um, five to 10% were, you know, buck up cowboy, this happens, you know what you got into, you gotta forget about it and get back out there and do what you do. Uh, the, my loved ones early after and people that are close to me, they, everyone says all the right things and exactly what I say to people, you know, you do big cases, you're gonna have complications, this happens, very little of it is helpful. It's kind of blah, blah, blah. Um, but I can tell you that the, the feedback in the community of surgeons was probably the most helpful for me. Uh, there are 
two prominent urologists that reached out to me that you'd all probably recognize their names, who shared very personal stories about them being suicidal after having bad complications where they really needed intensive professional help and had to step away from work for a while. I heard feedback from other surgeons, not in urology, more than more than one who said, oh, this really resonated with me. It happened to me before. And guess what? I've never stepped back into the operating room since then. And a whole range of others um, on how they dealt with it and uh, healthy habits. It is absolutely positively a stress test of your character. Um, you want to be that person who owns it, doesn't point fingers, learns from it, and is a leader of a team um, that can, you know, kind of make the best of an absolutely heinous situation. You do not want to be one of those folks, and we all know who they are, where they're just firing bullets and laying blame and can't take responsibility at all. Um, you're responsible for your team that was in the OR that had to deal with it, and you have to take care of them. I remember that evening spending a lot of time with our fellow at the time, making sure he was okay, checking in with him because it's devastating for them as well, as well as the OR staff. But it's also important to recognize it's a stress test of your identity as well. Um, I mean, you can't help but look inward and, and you have to, you know, be honest with yourself that you, you call into question, should I be doing this? You know, am I capable you know, should I have done things differently? And, um, you know, those are some hard discussions that you have to have. And to that point, I do think it's incredibly important that you have to be self-aware and self-critical. I mean, you have to look back with a, a microscope and a lens and try to set aside your bias, get input from others. What could I have done differently? Am I appropriately trained? Am I cut out for this? You know, um, do I have the skill set? to be doing whatever it is you're doing. And um, I was struck by one of the comments that Rob Uzo had reached out to me after the article was published. And he's always a really thoughtful person. And in his email to me, there was a line that I've remembered ever since. And it said, the three hardest things are steel, diamond, and knowing oneself. And that is absolutely true for this and certainly many other things. But you have to you know, get to know yourself and ask some really deep, important questions. It's also important to recognize that self-loathing is natural. I mean, there's shame, there's doubt, uh, there's literal and figurative blood on your hands, and you have to take care of yourself by any means necessary, um, you know, to, to be your best self after something like this happens. I can tell you the healthy habits that worked for me. Uh, that is not mean it's going to work for you. You have to think for yourself. You know, time certainly does help, but it was weeks to months before I was anywhere close to not thinking about it multiple times during a day. Uh, for me, exercise is very helpful. Um, yoga, meditation, you know, distractions with doing things with family and friends. You always have to consider, you know, professional help. That's what people are there for at your institution or elsewhere. Uh, you don't want to have those destructive behaviors, you know, alcohol or drugs. Don't get me wrong. There were some nights where just having a couple drinks and getting your mind off things early after was really seemingly healthy, but you have to be self-aware enough not to go down that, that path. 
Uh, you have to find a way to move on. I know it sounds pithy and terse, but there's a Samuel Beckett quote that um, didn't really resonate when someone first told me, but I've thought about it a lot and it's true. You know, the, the quote is, you must go on. I can't go on, I'll go on. And uh, you have to figure out a way to go forward in a healthy manner. The healthy habit um, that I had at that time and probably even more so now are your colleagues. And um, sometimes at your institution and quite frankly, more often outside your institution. And um, I have a network of folks who do what I do, do the types of cases I do. And we have a couple different text strings and we get on the phone with each other and we share our, our highs and our lows. We share our inner feelings about when it hurts. We call each other up after things. We check in on each other, you know, days or weeks afterwards. And if you can harvest that network, um, it's certainly helpful which gets to mitigation strategies. Um, you know, you have to be honest with yourself on should you be doing certain things, certain types of cases. You have to be hypercritical on, you know, preparation beforehand, you know, talking to the patient and their family, be, being honest about potential complications, preparing yourself mentally for the case, physically for the case, having the right tools available. Always, always include you know, partners or other services, um, either preoperatively or intraoperatively. I always tell folks that if there's ever a birdie on one of your shoulders telling you that you should be asking for some help, do it. I can tell you early in my career, the birdie on the other shoulder won out where your ego gets in the way and you end up doing things that you probably would have been better off asking for help. People are always happy to help. Um, and then obviously intraoperatively, there's all sorts of things that you have to, you know, troubleshoot and be in a good headspace and be the leader of the team on how to mitigate complications. And then, you know, after surgery, that's a whole separate discussion. Um, but healthy habits for yourself, get back at least for me to those things that I mentioned earlier. And you have to be honest with yourself on how to minimize complications, but also if and when they happen and they will. Um, how to take care of yourself, your loved ones, your team, and uh, and get through it in as a positive way as possible. So I thank you for listening. Uh, hopefully there was some, some value in some of the things that I threw up against the wall to share with you. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the comments and discussion. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Egno. That was, uh, that was just such a great, uh, all the points that you raised around this subject. If, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you a few questions and then I'm going to introduce our patient partner as well in, in, into, the, into the team. How did it, you know, Casey had shown us his complication, which was a protracted morbidity, right? The patient survived. You had a mortality. How was it, how difficult was it for you to do that next IBC thrombectomy? Yeah, incredibly difficult. And uh, I overprepared extensively. But what I wrote about in the article, and I feel that way, I, I felt I was capable. I felt I was pretty good at what I do. These kind of things happen. And I kind of fall back on baseball analogies a lot. And as lame as it sounds, the way I thought about it is it's like a a closer in a baseball game, giving up the game winning home run. You have to learn from it. It'll haunt you. 
but at some point you got to get back on the mound and, you know, be there for your team and your, your team is your literal team in the medical center, but also the patient. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was incredibly tough. I get the sense, uh, Scott, that you, you're resilient, right? You, I mean, Kevin was speaking about resilience training, but you, you, you seem to me like a resilient individual. I've personally, I've struggled sometimes when I've had a bad event and I think, God, you know, like, can I do that? And, and that comment that you said, like, you do question yourself, like, can I do this or am I doing the right thing? And I, and I think that level of introspection and reflection is important and not arrogance, you know? Um, Scott, we'll, we will um, bring you in with everyone else, but I, I think it's important now for us to introduce our patient partners into this mix because We've been speaking about the complications from our perspective as a surgeon. And I think what Dr. Turner said is it's really important that number one front and center is that we don't neglect the, the huge uh, uh, problem that the patient and their family has been facing. So I'd like to introduce Jason and Monica uh, Piper, uh, uh, who are, uh, Jason is a dear patient of mine. Welcome. Hi. Hi. And uh, uh, Monica is... Uh, Jason's uh, uh, wife and, and also uh, someone I got to know very well over the last uh, few years. Uh, J Jason uh, underwent also a protracted morbidity uh, related to, again, a simple procedure like urethroscopy. And in fact, Jason's uh, complication was featured in the British Journal of Urology as case of the month so that we could teach others about this scenario. Uh, thank you for joining us. You've been listening to the talks and how and thank you for supporting this event. And this is no meant to bring things back, but how does this all make you feel listening to surgeons speak like this? Um, you know, we did think of how you would were feeling at the time. It's hard to, you know, imagine being in the situation where a family member could be dying, but you know, I at the time, you don't think very much, oh, no, what are what is the staff thinking, everybody who was there or but I mean, you do, you do. And knowing you as we did, um, we were worried about you as you know, you were worried about us <laughs> through the whole process, the months. That's very sweet of you, Monica, to say that. Uh, Kevin, uh, Dr. Turner, I want to bring Kevin, you know, you're. You're a world expert on this subject. I, I want to give you an opportunity to maybe ask some questions to, to the Pipers. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I think in this area, the only thing you need to do to be a world expert is to have, have said one thing about it. And that I guess that, that uh, illustrates the whole issue here, really, which is that, you know, surgeons have been fabulously poor about um, talking about this. But um, Jason and Monica, again, thank you. This is a brave thing to do. Um, the, the term second victims has sometimes been applied to the doctors involved in looking after a patient when they have a complication. And some patient groups have said, hang on a minute, that, you know, that, that's not, not helpful. Um, the patient's the victim. It's not the surgeon who's the victim. How, how, how do you feel about that sort of language when, when talking about when things go wrong? I mean, it's going to be a traumatic for the surgeons as much as the patient. It's, you know, it's a lot to process if they have, you know, did they do everything they did that properly? Was everything, if they could have done better to, to not have this outcome? 
And, you know, people need to talk about it. People need to say, hey, people, you know, surgeons are human too. They need to discuss these feelings. And we did. And we and, did. And so, yeah. And, and did it, was it helpful for you to see that the surgical team were, were suffering too? Or did you just want them to be um, confident professionals and to put their own um, emotions to one side? Or, or was, the, was them displaying the, their human frailties um, uh, helpful or unhelpful to you? I thought it was helpful as a patient. I thought it showed that they, you know, we're all human. We, you know, we make mistakes and, you know, we get, or even though there wasn't a mistake, yeah, there, it, was, yeah. it was just a circumstance, yeah. you know, sometimes the situation. You, sometimes you can't control. I mean, it's something that's out of your hand. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jason and Monica. I'd like to bring in, uh, you know, uh, the, the fantastic uh, panel that we've had so far. So Dr. Farber, Dr. McCormick, Dr. Witsky, Dr. Dow and Dr. Egner, uh, uh, you know, into the into the discussion here. And, you know, I, I, I maybe I want to just reflect and say, Gary, Lynn, I mean, uh, what, what I saw you uh, during the talks. I can hear you nodding, and Lynn, you're making notes. I, I want to give the floor to you, Lynn, first. Some some perspectives from your side. Well, I have to tell you that I have walked the road to hell, as most of us have, and with all the good intentions that we walk that road with. And when you have to step back into the OR the next time with the same type of case, because when you're doing a case like ureteroscopy and Dr. Da addressed it very accurately, the difference between an excellent case without problems and something that goes south quickly is a matter of millimeters. And I had to constantly remind myself after having a complication that this case that I'm doing today is not that case. And I had to remind myself constantly that each time I do that case again, it's not going to be the case that I had a complication with. And after a while, it, it came back to what I enjoy doing every day. But it did forever change the way I felt about what I do, but I still enjoy what I do and I still want to do what I do. But it, it did change the way I feel about what I do. Thank you, Lynn. Uh, Gary, if I may get some of your perspectives here. Uh, I, I, I was just reflecting on, on both what Kevin and, and Scott talked about is that when um, surgeons are under uh, stress like this uh, and what the effect the pandemic must, must, must be having on, on, on all of us and that, you know, we're still operating. Uh, complications still occur. Uh, and yet, um, you know, the human contact that we have has been severely limited. Uh, just I, I have a feeling that we're all going to go through a period of PTSD uh, because we've we've kind of lost our network and we've lost our touch with 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 each other. It's um, I see it as a as a, a division chief uh, amongst my my fellow faculty members uh, and my division is small. I can imagine that this is. Uh, a bigger, bigger problem. 
Yeah, I think you bring up a really interesting point, Gary, and that is that um, this event happened in the context of the uh, first wave of the pandemic. Uh, so the patient was unable to be with his family uh, for, for 50 days. Um, and, you know, Scott courageously presented his complication, which is fundamentally different um, in that the, the, the patient's family has to deal with um, that grave event on their own away. And in, 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 in the case that I had, it was um, something fun that I'd never had to navigate, which is that the patient wants to be with family and friends. So I almost felt like it was my obligation as a provider to spend that time with the patient because they were alienated from their family, friends, coworkers outside of Zoom chats and things like that. So to you, Kevin, I think that this resiliency takes on a whole different uh, notion from the patient and provider perspective in the context of a pandemic where we're isolating patients from their families. The one thing that um, Kevin had when he was talking that really struck a chord with me was kind of talk, thinking about being a resident and thinking about, you know, attendings, who, who, who could handle stress well and who could not handle stress well. And you could see this, that their relationships didn't go well. They didn't talk with their children. Casey mentioned that, that it really affects you. And then you could see others who are very caring. And so I think that it's very important to focus on residents and fellows and those that are learning and have a strong network for them. Thank you, Carla. I want to bring uh, Dr. Egner and Dr. Turner uh, into the uh, discussion around. So, Scott, you heard what Kevin's doing in the UK around the safe, uh, the safer, and the first responder. Do you think there's any traction for that type of work here in in the US? Uh, pardon my language, but hell yeah! And I can tell <laughs> you, as we were prepping for this, and I saw, I listened to Kevin's Zoom that he gave to the music group privately, and I listened to it and I've already forwarded it to a couple people within our institution and to the Chicago Urological Society, because I think both within urology, within surgery and wider urology in Chicago, I think it's a tremendously positive and um, long needed intervention and just, to, just recognition of it. So um, yes. And, and thank, thank you, Scott. Just, uh, I want to, there's been some comments coming into the chat. Dr. Ginsburg has said to, Said, th thanking uh, Casey, Scott, and Kevin for sharing your experiences, important topics that are often brushed under the rug. Uh, Dr. Kudikoff uh, uh, has said, uh, according to your experience, Scott, that yes, getting through that next case is the hardest, uh, but you need to have the support of your mentors and your peers is what gets you through. So on that note, Lynn and Carla, are, are you're big supporters and champions in music. Is this something music should consider trying to develop some, as some type of community support system for our surgeons? Well, I, we, echo, I was going to say, I think I would echo Scott with, hell yeah, I really do. I think it's really <laughs> important. <laughs> we already support each other in so many ways. I think this would be a great grassroots movement at least for us. And if we can start it, many other states and many other organizations have already followed us. This, this is just the next initiative. And, and th thank you, Lynn, uh, you know, and um, Gary, you know, the, you mentioned the pandemic and then Casey, you talked about how difficult it was for you. And I just want to bring in the pipers because this also happened in the heat of the pandemic, right? How difficult it was for you, Monica, they live in Northern Michigan near 
uh, near Petoskey, uh, separated from your kids. Um, just tell us what no, what advice can you give to other patients and uh, caregivers to get through these difficult type of situations? Um, I did stay down there. I was I was there every day from the minute I could get there to the end of the day. And um, it was hard. It was difficult. We've never been away from our children before. Before that, we have two young boys. And um, so we just developed such a good relationship with Dr. Ghani and his colleagues. And we hit probably every department in the hospital. So um, everybody was just very supportive. Everyone there, there, we've never had a single problem the whole time we were there. And this is over the course of the full month he stayed. And then when we returned several times for weeks, um, it's. I just want to say for patients, be patient. Yeah. And that's going to be scheduled on time. You know, it's basically an eight o'clock, eight o'clock appointment or eight o'clock procedure. It things happen. And just to be patient with everyone involved because they're all trying their best. Wise words, Jason. That is that you are spot on there, um, uh, Kevin. You know, uh, we would love to work with your team in Bournemouth, and uh, you know, just a couple of more comments. I just I don't want to ignore the chat. Quite, I mean, uh, Doctor Submergen, who's one of our uh, physician leaders in music, said, "Thank you for all being so uh, uh, able to share your experiences and such an important discussion." Uh, Dr. Uh, Galina uh, uh, Fernandez uh, has, has put in a comment saying it's about offering support to colleagues. And uh, that's one thing when you were saying, uh, Monica, Jason, like I asked every many faculty in my department as well, like, hey, am I doing the right things? Can you give me a second opinion? Can we check? And I think Casey did the same. And he, he reached out to so many uh, to, to get that support. Dr. Ginsburg has said that, this is a nice statement, remember these themes next time you participate in a morbidity and mortality conference. Mm -hmm. Empathy and compassion is important. And I think that's really important, right? It's It shouldn't be, oh, I can't believe you did that. And that's not right. And I mean, you know, things happen and I think we all mean to do well. Um, and I, I'm just going to stop because there's more comments coming in and I, I want to honor them. But Kevin, um, tell us about, do you think this is something that we can work with your team and, and, and a project in music? Well, I mean, the simple answer is yes. I mean, the, there's practicalities to iron out, um, of course. But, you know, I, um, I, obviously I'm passionate about this, but I, I really do think we there will be a time in the future when surgeons will look back with amazement that we hadn't thought about how we were affected by the work that we do and we hadn't been better at supporting each other you know i mean scott in his article said uh, in his talk said you know this is a ubiquitous experience you know you cannot be a surgeon and be unaffected when things go wrong and and i guess what we've tried to illustrate in what in the work we've been doing is that the the breadth and depth of of that impact is predictable really and and if nothing else making our trainees aware of it um, it will be the first step in in helping each other 
deal with it. Talking about it more is just it just just talking about it is is hugely helpful. And when when we've spoken in various um, environments about this in the, in the UK, the main comment that people come up to us after we've given a talk or written something is thank you for for talking about it. And it seems I think we there will be a time in the future when we will look back and say. It's utterly extraordinary that we weren't supporting each other more. And, and Peter Yu um, from the United States, you know, picked this up in his comment when he said, no other profession that demands um, such high performance does so little to support um, its practitioners. And, you know, if you, if, you, if you extend this to a sporting analogy, and even if you just look at us as expensive providers of an expensive service, um, the amount of effort that's not put into to helping us compared to what goes into to literally massaging, but also metaphorically massaging a, a high-performing sports individual to maintain their performance, is, it, the difference is extraordinary. And, and, you know, when we go wrong, when we break, then it's enormously expensive and time-consuming and troublesome for the organisations that employ us. So at all sorts of levels, personal, professional, financial, um, it, makes, it makes sense to do this better. Would we work with you, Kershid? I mean, it'd be, it would be a thrill, um, but um, you're, you're a bunch of extreme capable and organized individuals and and much of what we said you can do without us but um you know you just just need to be um determined thank you kevin thank you uh uh i had a question for you scott and then it it just because there's so many comments coming in on the chat and i'm like reading them reading them uh and my question to you scott will come but couple of points I want to, Dr. Johnson, one of our music neurologists said that we have a forum for kidney cancer cases, a virtual forum where we discuss complicated cases. And recently he presented his difficulties with an adverse event since that he found it was a really helpful avenue. Um, anything like that, that you have, you've got in your department, Scott, like, I mean, I, I get the sense that you're everyone's speed dial for like when something goes wrong. Is that right? Yeah. Just what I wanted to be when I was training is when, uh, <laughs> you know, the go-to person on how to deal with complications. Uh, I meant that in a sincere way in terms of how to get people through something. I, I am, I am, uh, I proudly uh, wear that jacket because I think it's incredibly important. Um, preemptively to your point, uh, you know, there's, there's formal, you know, on conferences and equivalents of that, but more so than any, I, I am more capable and confident in my skills now than I've ever been in my entire career. And probably now more than ever, I crowdsource things, you know, internally, externally, sometimes social media, text chains. I send people videos of scans. There's a couple people on this call that I've, you know, on the, uh, that are participants here that I want to get their input on what they would do. And I, um, that's something I should have learned how to do earlier, but I do very regularly now. So the theme is reach out, open up, and let's, as a community, work together, right? And be more open and honest. One question I want to ask um, Gary, is it okay to tell a patient, I'm sorry? Absolutely. Uh, it, I, I think it's, it's, it, it helps them, and I do believe it helps you to kind of go through this process together. Um, it shows your, it shows your patient, your humanity. So dude, I think it's, you know, we are not robots. We are, we are people just, just, just like patients. And I do, I absolutely, I've said it many times. 
And I, I say it too, but sometimes I got a criticism from one colleague once like, well, be careful. You don't want to put yourself to medical legal risk when you say that. Scott, do you have a view on that? Yeah, I'm with you. And you have to be present. And sometimes that birdie on one shoulder, you want to avoid the patient. You have to force yourself to be omnipresent. They all get my cell phone, my email, my pager. They need to know that you're there with them. It's hard, um, but you have to be there with them and empathize and do everything you can to get them through it. Thank you. That's really important advice. We are a couple of minutes over time. A couple of other comments I just want to uh, mention. Dr. Rogers, again, one of our physician leaders in music. Uh, thank you for your humility in sharing your experiences. Great advice about support of mentors, peers, and family, and really appreciate your perspectives. Dr. Clear, uh, again, a strong supporter for us in the state and, and leads the IHA Urology Group. Amazing presentations. Thank you. Uh, we learned from residency that if you have a complication, you have to present it at morbidity and mortality under the magnifying lens of your colleagues. From personal experience, I think the most important help for a surgeon, as discussed, comes from a trusted senior partner to liberate their emotions, to uh, identifying this individual for a surgical group or hospital is the key to a surgeon's well-being when bad stuff happens. So I think that's a theme I'm hearing. Like you know, like you said, Kevin, that that specific there's a character. A type of this surgeon that we can reach out to when things go wrong, correct? And I think we'll learn more and more who, what he or she, that specific type should be. Um, uh, Dr. Peabody, uh, again, a big supporter in our state, uh, texted me and just said, uh, this is the best music meeting he's ever been to. Mm-hmm. And Carla, he just volunteered that he wants to be involved in this initiative for music. Yeah. So I think we can do it, okay? With or without Kevin's help, like you said, but I think we can do it. I think this forum has given this opportunity for us to speak about it. Um, I, I just, uh, I think, uh, I, unless anyone else has any final comments, things that they want to say, I think that I'm going to wrap up and say a big thank you to Dr. Witzke. Dr. McCormick, Dr. Shields, who had to leave us, but uh, is a phenomenal partner for for us here at Michigan. Um, Professor Farber for your insights, especially around laser papillotomy. Uh, And then uh, thank you, Kevin Turner. Thank you for spending your evening with us from the UK. It is late for you, but we we thank you. A great pleasure. Um, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Egner, thank you so much for joining us from just down the road in Chicago. Uh, and thank you. And you, I know you had a busy clinic today. And then finally, a big shout out to Casey for presenting his case, for being so brave uh, and to talking about this scenario. And I know he had an extremely busy day in the operating room today. And we both joked, we were both operating today. And we were like, we better not have a complication that stops us from getting to this webinar. <laughs> so there was the tension of that. And then... Last but not least, our patient partners, Jason and Monica. Thank you. Thank you. We've learned a lot from your journey and we hope to engage you more in this process in music. Um, And then thanks to everyone for for listening and and joining us. And then some final uh, thanks to our coordinated center team members for putting this show together. Uh, Thanks to Russell Video uh, for putting this as well. But special shout out to Bronson Conrado, the ROCKS program manager, and then in particular, Anna Johnson, the brains behind this whole operation, putting everything together. So thank you, Anna. 
And thank you, everyone. Good evening. Take care. And this it will be recorded and available on our music website. And I look forward to engaging with you all again in the future. Thank you.